Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 23. And I'd encourage you to pause this now and to read those verses on your own. So we're in 1 and 2 Samuel, and these books tell Israel's story as they transition from a collection of tribes to a united monarchy. And we've been seeing each week that Israel's story is our story, that their hopes and failures are the same as ours. And each week, too, we've been letting this story resonate with our own longings for a true king, one who will come and really make things right, which is really all about justice. When we long for the true king, one of the things we're longing for is true justice. We're longing for the world to be made right. And so I want to look at this passage through the lens of justice. How might this story, which is really hard and which raises a lot of questions, how might this story help us be wise about justice? How does this story help us as God's people to reflect on justice and to approach our efforts at doing justice with humility? Let's look at how it shows us our longing for justice and then the problem with our justice and then finally, how it points us toward the arrival of true justice. We see our need for justice and our longing for justice reflected in the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? How did God's people view them? Well, in Israel's story, one way to think about the Amalekites is that they're basically injustice personified. In Exodus chapter 17, we learn that after God's people had been liberated from their oppression in Egypt, the Amalekites show up to attack them. In Deuteronomy 25, we learn that the attack wasn't a fair fight. The Amalekites weren't interested in doing open battle with Israel. Instead, they waited for the people to get really tired as they journeyed through the desert, and then they attacked from behind. And so they picked off the ones who were lagging, the stragglers. In other words, they fought dirty. They went after the most vulnerable, the weakest, the ones on the margins. Throughout the Old Testament, these are precisely the people that God cares for the most. God is especially concerned about what has been called the quartet of the vulnerable, widows, orphans, immigrants, the poor. He sides with them. His concern is that they be cared for. In the Old Testament, this is central to what it means to do justice, care for the vulnerable. I'll read just a few verses to remind us of this theme that really pervades the Old Testament. In Zechariah, we read this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, administer true justice, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. In Deuteronomy, we read this, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the, fa the fatherless, and the widow. In Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In Proverbs, we read this, Whoever oppresses a poor man, insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Well, we could go on and on. I mean, this is just a, a handful of examples, but the point is God wants the most vulnerable people in Israel to be the most cared for, the most looked after. And what do the Amalekites do? They come along and they make them targets. They pick them off one by one. 
You see, they are injustice personified. As Israel tells their story, the Amalekites are held up as the worst of the worst. They're exhibit A for what is wrong with the world. And so that means, you see, that God must oppose them if he cares about his world. In fact, in Exodus 17, we read that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You see, this this fight is meant and it's expected to go on and on and on. But even though Exodus tells us that the Lord will have war with the Amalekites, uh, Israel never does the attacking. Not once between Exodus and our passage does Israel go out to initiate a conflict. Instead, it's always the Amalekites who attack. They attack Israel in the wilderness in Exodus. They do it again in Numbers. In Judges, they join with the Moabites in attacking Israel. Later, they join with the Midianites in attacking Israel. They would wait for the Israelites to plant their crops, and then they would come in and devour the produce of the land and leave no sustenance. And you see, this is what injustice does. It robs people of power and possessions. It takes. From Israel's perspective, the Amalekites weren't just another nation. They were the people who more than any other had tried to destroy Israel. See, the Amalekites were threat number one. They represented everything wrong with the world. And I wonder, who are your Amalekites? Who are your Amalekites? Well, in the story, this just, this isn't only a problem for Israel. Remember, why does Israel exist in the first place? To be a blessing to the nations. Through Israel, somehow, God intended to bless the whole world, maybe to set the whole world right, maybe to bring justice for all. And so in this way, the Amalekites pose a threat to the entire mission of God. You know, it's interesting, in the Bible story, the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. Remember, he's the one who renounced his blessing. He traded it for a bowl of stew. And now his descendants are following in his footsteps. The Amalekites are rejecting the blessing of God that might come to them through Israel and are instead attacking the very people through whom God's blessing is meant to come to the whole world. The Amalekites need to be dealt with, which is to say injustice needs to be dealt with. God desires shalom for his world. And sometimes the protester signs have it right. No justice, no peace. See, a world of shalom can't include the Amalekites, which is to say a world of blessedness can't include injustice. Deep inside you and me is a longing for justice and a longing for one who would bring it. We long for a king who will once and for all rid the world of Amalekites, do away with injustice, and set things right. But there's a problem. And our passage brings it to the fore in a remarkable and tragic and really perplexing way because you might think, gosh, if the Amalekites are the problem, just go out there and wipe them out. In fact, uh, that's how the story tells it. That's what God asks Saul, the king, to do. He tells Saul to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey which is extremely troubling, to put it mildly. 
But remember, I don't think this passage is part of Israel's story to teach us about how God hates the Amalekites, but rather to teach us about how God hates injustice and to help us to be wise about justice. And so the takeaway for us won't be murder an Amalekite, but instead care deeply about justice. Remember, the Amalekites are like injustice personified. Injustice has to be dealt with. I wonder who are your Amalekites? Who is it that represents everything wrong with this world? Who do you see posing the biggest threat? Last week, David French reports, quote, the University of Virginia released polling results that should shock exactly no one who closely follows American politics and culture. A majority of Trump voters, 52%, and a strong minority of Biden voters, 41%, strongly or somewhat agree that it's time to split the country. Why would they even contemplate such a drastic step? Well, the poll provides the answers, and they're not surprising. Competing partisans loathe each other and view the opposition as an existential threat. Close quote. See, more and more political partisans in our country are viewing each other as Amalekites. The other side is the personification of injustice. Those people represent everything that's wrong with this world. So what's the answer? Divide the country? Another civil war? Well, what about within the church? I mean, what's the solution here? Start a new denomination that will finally get it right? See, our passage shows us that getting rid of the Amalekites is tougher than it looks. The passage opens with the Lord telling Samuel that he regrets making Saul the king because Saul has not listened to him. He hasn't obeyed. He didn't do the one thing that God asked him to do. Now, what was that? Wipe out injustice. Destroy the Amalekites. But when Samuel goes to meet Saul, the first thing Saul says is, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. In other words, I heard and I obeyed. I did what God asked me to do. Mission accomplished. Justice achieved. Let the shalom begin. Samuel's response is classic. He basically says, if you really heard the voice of the Lord and obeyed it, then how come all I hear is the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? You know, the ones you were supposed to have completely destroyed. You see, it turns out that Saul only kind of, sort of, did away with injustice. His efforts were incomplete and insufficient. When confronted with his failure, immediately the king starts blaming his people. He says, they're the ones who spared the animals. He covers it with a religious and spiritual justification. We were going to use them to make a sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel's not having any of that. He sees right through it and he calls Saul on it. He says, stop. You're the king. You're the king only because God made you king. And your one role as the king was to listen to the voice of the Lord, to really hear it and heed it. The Lord asked you to bring justice. Why haven't you done it? And Saul says, but I have. He says, I have gone on the mission 
on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have destroyed the Amalekites to destruction. But you see, Saul has deceived himself. He's saying that he did what God asked him to do. And when Samuel confronts him with his failure to destroy the Amalekites, his failure to bring justice, Saul makes excuses. The king starts shifting the blame onto his people. But the real tragedy to notice is this. Remember, the people said they wanted a king like all the other nations. And now they have one. When the Amalekites waged war, they did it to do what all nations do, to accrue power and wealth for themselves. This is what they did to Israel over and over again. They attacked Israel for their own gain. They stole from Israel. They did this throughout the Old Testament for hundreds of years leading up to this moment. The Amalekites went after Israel's livestock and capital. And notice, what Samuel tells Saul is that he must not do, what the, he must not do that to the Amalekites. See, there aren't to be any spoils of this war. Everything is to be destroyed. This war will not profit Israel at all. This was a war to utterly wipe out injustice. But you see, Israel didn't do it. Saul didn't do it. He took the sheep and the oxen. He kept the spoils of the battle. The people said they wanted a king like the other nations, and now they have one. Saul has become an Amalekite. He went out to strike a blow against injustice, but in the process of doing that, he became an instrument of injustice himself. And what about us? Are we any better at bringing justice than he was? Or do we find that injustice is still alive and well in our communities? and that we even contribute to it. See, to answer that question, we just need to look around at how the most vulnerable among us are cared for. What about the very old? What about people with disabilities? What about the very young? What about widows and orphans and, and the poor? What about prisoners? What about immigrants and migrants and refugees? You see, the problem with our justice is that at best, it's only partial. Sometimes we think we've done justice when we're really just deceiving ourselves about having done it. And at worst, our efforts to do justice end up just perpetuating more injustice in a different form. As soon as we feel like we've done it, like we've really brought it, like we've accomplished it. Samuel comes along saying, then how come all I hear is the bleeding of sheep? See, injustice family is never only a problem out there for those people. It's always a problem right here within the community of the people of God and within your heart and within mine. We start out opposing the Amalekites and then we end up just like them. And so what? Uh, do we just do nothing in the face of injustice? Just sit back and let injustice have its way? No, no. God loves justice and he wants us to love justice. In fact, he calls us to do justice. 
but he also calls us to walk humbly with him. And that's the point. See, we need to see that Saul is us. We can so easily deceive ourselves about justice, what it is, what it requires. We can so easily twist our efforts at doing justice into ways of building ourselves up, making little monuments to our own glory. There are so many ways our doing justice can go wrong. And all of this should make us humble. See, we must work for justice, but we must do it from a place of profound humility, recognizing that even our best efforts are provisional and probably flawed in ways we can't even see. We need to see that ultimately, we won't be the ones who bring injustice to an end. Because too often we're the Amalekites. The very people of God are the ones who hinder God's mission. And so we need a king who is better than Saul at bringing justice, and we need a king who is better than we are at bringing justice. And so let's look at the arrival of true justice. If you read on in our chapter, 1 Samuel 15, just a little bit, you come to verse 28, where Samuel says to Saul that because of his failure to really hear and heed the voice of the Lord, his failure to utterly destroy the Amalekites, which is his failure to deal with injustice, quote, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Well, that's good news. When the king becomes an Amalekite, and when God's people become Amalekites, it's good to hear that a better king is on the way. Who is it? Well, immediately the narrative has David in view. But we need to look past David. Remember, Saul insisted, I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. But he hadn't. He didn't. He was wrong. He failed at the mission of bringing true justice. About a thousand years later, though, Jesus shows up. And one day he goes to the synagogue and he announces his mission by taking the scroll of Isaiah and reading this passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, here is a king who won't be another Amalekite. He won't hinder Israel's mission to be a blessing to the nations. He'll fulfill it. He won't be a king like the other nations. He'll be a king who really cares for the vulnerable and the needy, for the ones on the margins. He'll always be looking for ways to care for the low and the last and the least and the lost. But what about the enemies of God? What about the ones who do hinder God's mission? What about the Amalekites, which remember is to say, what about you? What about me? What about Saul? What about the Israelites? Later in chapter 15, after our passage, Samuel decides to finish the job that Saul started with the Amalekites. And so we read this harrowing verse. 
Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women, women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It's gruesome. It's extremely unsettling. We wonder, is this how God deals with his enemies? Or is the true king also better than Samuel? Well, family, what do we see when we look at Jesus Christ? I mean, you remember, don't you? At the end, he gets up on his mighty war horse and he grabs his sword and he charges into Jerusalem, hacking the Amalekites and the rest of God's enemies to pieces. No. What we see actually is that the true king doesn't tear his enemies apart. Instead, he goes to the cross and he is torn apart. See, he becomes an Amalekite for us. Here is a king who doesn't shift blame like Saul did onto his people. Instead, he takes the injustice of his people onto himself and into himself, and he bears it, and he bears it away. See, this is the king who has come and he will come again. This is the one who becomes injustice so that in the meantime, while we wait for his coming, we might be people who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with him. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.